Good afternoon. If you've, uh, if you've got a Bible on your phone or, or with you, and you want to go ahead and open that up to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to continue our way through the book of 1 Peter this morning. And while you get situated there, I just want to take a second to recognize there are some people in this room who covered large distances on foot yesterday. Yes, they're there to be congratulated for that. That's a, a great personal accomplishment, uh, no matter how fast or which distance it was. Uh, I hope that you feel a sense of, of pride and joy in having uh, taken part in that yesterday. I wanted to just pass along a little bit of information in general about how the Team World Vision effort went. On the whole, there were over 600 people in Kansas City that signed up to run as part of Team World Vision, spread out over a number of churches uh, around the city. And those individuals raised $362,000 for clean water in sub-Saharan Africa, which is amazing. That works out to uh, 7,000 individuals who will receive a 40-year water solution. That's life-changing for individuals there. Our church, uh, specifically, there were 129 people that signed up here from from LCF, and we raised just under $90,000, which is... 1,800 individuals who, yeah, we can applaud that. Um, 1,800 individuals who will have uh, a life-changing event take place in their life. And our volunteer coordinator throughout the last 18 weeks that we've been working on this whole deal was Eric Bayer. And he is actually traveling in November to Ethiopia to see the implementation of Uh, one of these water solutions in a particular village, which is really, really exciting. He did an amazing job uh, coordinating for us. He was here during last service, the second service. So if you see him or you have an opportunity to just thank him for all the work that he did, encourage him. He also completed his first full marathon yesterday, which he was excited about. Um, So uh, incredible opportunity uh, that we took part in. And Yesterday, just being down there and seeing all the orange shirts in general, but so many people from Liberty Christian Fellowship, whether running, uh, walking, cheering people on, whatever the case might be, it was a really fun morning to be down there and to take part in that. And I was, uh, I was proud and blessed just to be your pastor and to be a part of this church uh, doing that sort of good in the world. And I, I just want to take a minute here before we get into 1 Peter and pray for the individuals who are going to receive that water. They're going to have an interaction with staff and volunteers from World Vision. And I just want to take some time to pray that not only would they receive the gift of water, but also that they would get to hear about living water and eternal life through those volunteers who are going to be there. So if you would join me in prayer. God, thank you for the opportunity to be used Uh, by you to use our gifts and blessings and legs and resources, God, to change life for individuals in another part of the world, people that we'll never meet, people that we'll more than likely never see or interact with at all. Uh, We probably won't even know where Uh, our money ended up in sub-Saharan Africa and and what the water solution in that place looks like, Lord. But uh, we're thankful to be used by you in order to bring hope and life and health to individuals on the other side of the world. God, our prayer is that you would take 
that physical blessing, that gift of water, and that you would turn it into a door for the explanation of the gospel. Lord, that life for people in Africa and water for people in Africa would turn into eternal life for people in Africa, in tribes and villages in sub-Saharan Africa, that it would turn into living water being brought to people who are thirsting for a Savior. God, would you do that work through World Vision and their volunteers and their staff people who go and uh, deliver the, the blessing of water. Lord, thank you for using us in that sort of way. Thank you for protecting uh, people within our church and uh, being with them yesterday while they ran, Lord, or walked, or whatever the case might be. God, my prayer is that in anything like that, where we have the opportunity to give of ourselves or our talents or, or our money, God, that we would see those things not as opportunities to prop ourselves up for the good that we're doing, but as opportunities to prop the gospel up. And um, humbled by the opportunity to take part in that as a church, God. So thank you. Thank you for your son, Christ. Would he be glorified and made known through our efforts over the last 18 weeks? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, about four months ago, a little over four months ago, we, we talked about identifying need in the world and then using our blessings or our positions or our money or whatever the case might be in order to meet those needs. Today, we're going to talk about a need in the world, and we're going to do so through second, or 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through, through 25, and it's a, it's a need that's invisible for the most part in America. It's an evil that is invisible for the most part in America, and that's slavery. Slavery is a daily reality for millions of people around the world, and we don't bump into it in suburban America very often. In fact, the only way we bump into it in suburban America is if somebody tells us about it happening somewhere else in America or in the world. This is a young man from the nation of Congo. He's a child laborer in a gold mine there. It's more than likely that when he and his family were taken captive that they were separated and that he doesn't know where his parents are and his parents don't know where he is. It's more than likely that he'll spend the entirety of his life in slavery. In fact, around the world, conservative estimates say that there are 30 million people that live every day of their life in some form of slavery, some form of captivity. They're scattered all around the world. Here's a map of showing the percentage of any country's population that lives in slavery. The darker the color on the map, the higher the percentage of that nation's population that exists in slavery. Those colors, what are colors on a map to us, represent real lives. The souls of real people trapped in slavery. In some of those countries, the number is as high as 4% of the individuals that make up a nation live in slavery. The amount of undocumented slaves all around the world is likely equal to or double what is represented on the map. Captive servants, child laborers, forced prostitution, sex trafficking, hereditary bondage, indentured servitude, debt slavery, 
no rights, no voice, no freedom, no power, no control, daily fear. That's reality for millions of people in the world. It's something that we don't interact with very often, but it's something that absolutely exists. And it's evil, and it's abhorrent, and it's sinful, and it's twisted, and it's broken. And it has existed throughout history, all over the world, in various forms. Peter writes his letter to churches scattered throughout what is modern-day Turkey, and he addresses those who are in slavery. And he gives them a particular calling. He says, here's how I want you to live. He gives them an encouragement. Here's how you exist within this institution. Here's what you are to do as a follower of Christ who also happens to be a slave. That's one of the powers and one of the beauties of Scripture is that it's the Word of God written by inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired individuals to real people in real situations throughout history. And one of the situations that the New Testament writes to repeatedly is those who find themselves in slavery. You can find those passages in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Peter and Titus and in 1 Timothy. And there's a, a biblical call for how do you exist in this type of setting. And so it's important for us to talk about that. It's important for us also to figure out how is it that we in 21st century suburban America take a passage of scripture like this and actually apply it to our lives? How is it possible to take a passage of scripture that's about slaves submitting to their masters and then rightly interpret that and apply it to our lives today where we don't have a master. We don't live in slavery. The typical thing that we do is we take this and we say, oh, it's like a work, it's like an employee-employer relationship. It's like a boss and an employee. And I understand why it is that we do that, but there is a world's worth of difference between a boss and an employee and a slave and a master. A huge difference. A chasm between those two things. And so it's important for us to figure out how do we read this scripture, understand that slavery is a thing that exists today, that it existed then, that Peter wrote into that first century context and said, here's how you exist as a Christian slave. And then we're reading that a couple thousand years later and we say, okay, what do we do with that? And so we're going to walk our way through that this morning. We're going to see what it is that Peter had to say to slaves in what's modern day Turkey and how they were supposed to live as Christians within that evil institution, and then we're going to take a step back from there and say, how is it that we take that passage of Scripture and apply that to our lives today? And I just want to make one more note before we jump in, and that's that this passage of Scripture was actually used by individuals in this country uh, a couple hundred years ago, 150 years ago, to justify the perpetuation of slavery in America. These verses were lifted out of their context and warped and twisted and used to justify continuing to hold people in bondage. That's a warped, twisted, disgusting way that people used Scripture at that time. People who would have claimed to be Christians. This passage of Scripture in no way supports perpetuating the institution of slavery. In fact, when we actually work our way through it, you're going to see that 
the model is actually that Christ has done something for us that has taken us out of slavery to sin. And that as Christians, we should be using our lives to help those who are powerless get out of their powerless situation. So we're going to see that as we walk our way through uh, this passage. We started last week in this whole section, um, a four-paragraph section here that Peter writes. And we said that all of it keys on the word submission. So what does it mean to submit? Well, submission is to willingly place yourself under the authority of another. And the first example that Peter gave was civilians to their government. How is it that we submit to the government? And now he begins to look at how is it that a slave submits to their master. And next week we're going to see how it is that we submit within families. And so he gives three different pictures. The first is that in relation to government, that you you submit respectfully to the government. Today we're going to see that you submit enduringly to your master. And then you submit lovingly within your family. We'll see that next week. Each of those give Christians the opportunity, Peter says, to display the gospel to the world. And so how does that look within the social institution, the sinful institution of slavery? Here's what Peter has to say. 1 Peter 2, 18-25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There's an immediate challenge for a translator that translates these passages and similar ones into English, particularly for an American audience. And that's that we have certain cultural baggage that we bring to the word slave. When we hear the word slave, we think of pre-Civil War, 1800s, chattel slavery that was racially driven, that said that one ethnic group of people, one race of people was worth less than another race, and so white people could own black people. That's what we bring to the word slavery. And so it's hard for a Bible translator, for an American reading, English-speaking audience, to write the word slave into this. Because a slave, in our mind, what we bring to it, is a little bit different than what a slave was in the first century. And so what we need is a word that somewhere fits between slave and servant. Because these individuals weren't really servants. They were slaves. And so oftentimes, as you read throughout Scripture, you see the word bond servant. That that kind of fills the gap between our cultural understanding of slavery and the uh, picture that we have of that and servant, which is kind of too soft of a word in the first century. So you see the word bond servant. They were slaves. They were slaves. The typical word for slave or servant translated throughout your Bible is doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S. That comes up a lot in Scripture. In this particular passage, 
the word that we get is oiketes. Oiketes literally means one who belongs to another or one who lives in the house of another under their authority. They're a slave. It's, that specific word is used a couple of times throughout the New Testament. Doulos is used repeatedly throughout the New Testament. A slave in the first century was the personal property of their owner. They could be doing manual labor, or they could be someone who worked in more of a skilled position, like a teacher or an artisan or a musician within a particular family. They were often paid for their services, and they even had hope that one day they would potentially be able to purchase their freedom. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages slaves, if you have the ability to gain your freedom, do so. Do so. That hope existed. At the same time, they were often treated very harshly. And their legal status and social standing in Roman society was as low as it got. They had no rights. They had no freedoms. They weren't servants, like we think of a servant. They also had more uh, dignity, if you will, than what we think of as slaves. And so there's a challenge in interpreting the passage. But it's important to note that these individuals were slaves. And we're going to see that Peter calls them to three unique ways of submitting as a slave because they're Christian. That as a Christian slave, you should exist within that institution differently than someone who's not a Christian. And so he calls them to three particular things. He says, servants, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. Be subject. Submit. That's uniqueness number one. Submission is for the Lord's sake. Jump back up to verse 13. Peter begins this section. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he applies that to three human institutions. The government, slavery, and family. And the general command there is to submit for the Lord's sake. So what's true generally applies specifically here. You submit to the Lord's sake as relation to the government. You submit for the Lord's sake in the midst of slavery. You submit for the Lord's sake in your family relationships. We'll talk about those next week. Submission is for the Lord's sake. And he continues, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Peter's readers slaves at the time, they don't get to choose the type of master that they have. You could have one who treats you gently and kindly. You could have gotten one who was just angry or flew off the handle easily and was often harsh and unkind. He says you don't get to choose the master that you have, but you submit nonetheless for the Lord's sake. Furthermore, your submission is driven by a fear of the Lord, not a fear of your master. That's uniqueness number two. Submission is out of fear of the Lord, not a fear of your master. He says, for this is a gracious thing. It's it's a beautiful thing, Peter says, when someone endures unjust suffering because they are, in his words, mindful of the Lord. To a slave who may have a harsh and unjust master, Peter says that it's a gracious thing to endure their unjust treatment as an act of servanthood to God. As a servant of the Lord, I submit to this master. He then kind of flips that into the negative. And he says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
reminds me of a passage in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus gives a similar type of instruction to his disciples. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love him. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you can expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus gives his disciples the same calling and encouragement that Peter gives to slaves in this setting. And it's this. That your interactions with the world, even with those who would intentionally do evil to you, should look different than everyone else's. Should look different. And then he goes on and gives us the difference. The back half of verse 20 says, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Uniqueness number three is that submission is to maintain a commitment to holiness. Peter spent the first chapter and a half of his letter talking about the call to live holy lives. And he expects that any believer is going to do that. And he goes on in the letter all throughout the rest of 1 Peter, and he uses the phrase, do good, repeatedly. We saw it last week. We see it again this week. He expects that believers in any life situation are going to live holy lives. They're going to do good. And so he says... If you do what is good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That even if you've got a master and he does something awful to you, no matter how many times you respond with good, Peter says one of the uniquenesses of being a Christian slave is that you submit enduringly for the Lord's sake. The underlying idea here is that, for Peter's readers, that their commitment to holy living in the face of unjust suffering would display a confidence in the Lord. And then he goes on and he grounds that in verses 21 to 25 in the reality of the gospel and Christ's example on our behalf. He says, For, this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. We get two truths out of the coming verses. The first is that Jesus provides substitution for us. Christ suffered for you. Jump down to verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He suffered in your place. He bore your sins in his body on the tree. And he did so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By faith in Jesus Christ... There is power for salvation and sanctification. Only by faith in Jesus Christ is there power for salvation and sanctification. Faith in His work on the cross that He bore our sins and His body on the tree is the only means by which we're saved. It's also the only means by which we're empowered to live a holy life. He provides substitution for us. But He also provides an example for us. Verse 21 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the model. That's the example. 
that the only person who's ever walked on the face of this planet and only ever did good, only ever lived a holy life, suffered immense evil silently. That in the midst of his unjust suffering, he didn't revile in return. He didn't threaten in return. He didn't swing back, so to speak. And Peter, to his readers who are slaves, says, that's your model, that you endure, you submit enduringly for the Lord's sake. If you've got your Bible on your phone and you can kind of flip quickly, or maybe you're just a real quick trigger in your actual Bible, um, and you want to jump back to Isaiah 53, Peter's done something uh, that I think is pretty, uh, pretty remarkable here. He's paraphrased Isaiah 53, 3 to 6 in what we have as 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. This is what Isaiah 53, 3 to 6 says. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with, him are, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like street, sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Isaiah prophesied what he predicted Jesus came and fulfilled and now to slaves Peter says you have the opportunity to illustrate to the world that he bore our sins on his body on the tree he did not revile in return he came and he fulfilled that and now in the midst of your slavery you have the ability to submit enduringly and give that picture to the world to portray the gospel in that sort of way Peter tells his first century readers who are slaves that our enduring of unjust suffering displays a picture of the gospel. But what does that mean for us today? What do we do with that today? No one in this room is a slave, to my knowledge. No one in this room has a master. So how do we take something like this and apply it correctly to our lives? I think there are a few things that we can walk away with. One is that there are times in life where we exist in a powerless position. Where we find ourselves in a place where we have no power in whatever the given structure or context is. And so in our most powerless positions, we submit for the sake of the Lord and the spread of the gospel. If you ever find yourself in a completely powerless place, you submit for the sake of the Lord. My prayer is that no one in here finds themselves in that type of environment. That you don't ever come up to a place in life where you're totally powerless and you're forced, you're literally subjugated under the power of another person. But if you do, we are to submit for the sake of the Lord. What's more likely is that we tend to find ourselves in positions of power. And so what do... Peter's words here have to say to those who are in power? I think there are a couple of questions that we can answer in regard to that. Does submission mean that someone in a powerless position doesn't try to find a way out? Absolutely not. If you're taking notes, jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 21-24. That's where Paul gives a very clear instruction 
that if a person is in slavery and they have the means to get out, then they should. If you can buy your way out, by all means, get yourself out. Submitting doesn't mean that someone in a totally powerless position just accepts that for the rest of their life and never tries to change their situation. It means that while they're stuck in the powerless position, they submit for the Lord's sake. And if they come across the means to remove themselves from that situation, by all means, please do so. But we come at this from a position of power, usually. Not that we have anyone in slavery underneath us, but that we see that slavery exists in the world. And so what do we do with that? Does the encouragement to submit mean that we shouldn't rescue people out of their powerlessness? The answer is absolutely not. God is incredibly concerned about the oppressed and the powerless. One of the ways we model Christ is by using our positions of power to help those who have none for themselves. When we were totally powerless to do anything about our sin, Christ, the Lord, in all of His power, stepped into the world and saved us. He redeemed us from that. One of the ways that we can model Christ to the world around us is that when we see powerlessness in the world around us, we act. We use our voice to help those who have no voice. We use our influence to help those who have no influence. We can use our power to help those who have none. Slavery is a real thing in the world. There are people who wake up every day with no voice and with no power and with no hope of that ever changing unless someone were to act on their behalf and save them from that. As brothers and sisters in Christ in suburban America, we have the chance to do that for people. If this is something that kind of strikes a chord within your heart, there is an incredible organization that I would encourage you to check out. It's called International Justice Mission. What they do is that they use lawyers and detectives and private investigators, and they fight sex trafficking the world over. They use their power to rescue those who are powerless. It's an incredible organization. There are other organizations all throughout America and throughout the world who exist for similar purposes and against different causes. Part of what we can do as believers in response to a passage like this is see our responsibility to help save those who find themselves in powerless positions. That should be something that we eagerly take part in as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to close this morning with just the 